0: Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience.
1: For those of you who don't know John, John really is one of the great business leaders of our time. Um, you're currently executive chairman of L1 and broadly I'm um, still active across the energy industry. You know, many of you will know John from his time as CEO of, of BP and then of course he's written a number of books and we'll we'll touch on your latest make, think, imagine, engineering the future of civilization and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But why, why don't we just start and give everyone a, a little bit of career advice. You, you spent most of your career at BP. Um, you started at the very bottom of the organization and, uh, and worked your way through. How did you go about building your career at BP? What were some of the lessons learned, What, you know, some advice for the, for, for the people here?
2: Well, good afternoon. I, uh, uh, the reason I joined BP is I actually my father, my dear late father, told me to get a real job. Uh, and uh, I was actually doing some research at university and he thought that was uh, completely unacceptable. Uh, and that uh, life is made of doing business with people. Uh, And so he said, a real job. So I, since he was going to retire from BP, I went and applied to a predecessor of BP uh, to get a job. Uh, And I took a job for a year. And uh, because at that time, the UK was regarded as the sick man of Europe, It's remarkable how things keep coming around. (laughs) I I actually left the country and went to the United States and didn't come back for 20 years. Uh, So uh, I got a job uh, first by... um, And they said, sure, we'll take you to the US. Uh, And I got a letter in those days. uh, The personnel department, HR, uh, was much more like the army than I think it is in modern day people management. So uh, the letter read, Dear Brown, comma, uh, your posting to Anchorage, Alaska is confirmed. (laughs) This was not my idea of the United States (laughs) at all. Uh, But what a great experience. And so I went and did field work as an engineer uh, for a couple of years. And I actually learned about the business by being put with uh, the basics of the business, which was, you know, all business starts with someone doing something uh, to create a product of some sort, whether it's software, hardware, a commodity, something, they create it. And the best thing I ever did was figure out that that's what happened and you had to attend to that if you wanted to be in business and you may as well learn about that early on. So I learned about that and then I learned about becoming an engineer. S- strangely, I wasn't an engineer, I was a physicist. So I had to go to night School, and that was another eye-opener. I went to the Anchorage Community College. I would graduated very well at Cambridge University, and then I went to Anchorage Community College to take a conversion course from physics to uh, engineering by night study. So I became an engineer, and I did that for 10 years, and that was the thing. I actually began to really understand how to solve real-world problems And that's what I really wanted to do. I realized that if you take um, some expertise and create something that makes a difference to people in one way or another, then you were doing something important, productive, and probably uh, valuable to uh, an organization. And what really excited me was trying to solve problems that nobody else had solved before.
1: And, And then going to the big picture, obviously the industry and your thinking around the industry changed so much during your tenure. The, you, know, you were really the first leader in the space, you know, beyond petroleum, BP, your focus on fossil fuel, fuels and the future of fossil fuels. It's, bl- it's blindingly obvious to everybody today. It wasn't so obvious at that point in time. Uh, uh, How did you get to that thinking? How-
2: well, I... I, I- I gave, I think many people in the industry know, I gave a speech in 97, I went back to one of my alma mater, Stanford University, and I gave a speech which basically said the oil and gas industry is producing a lot of carbon dioxide and they are changing the climate and we have to do something about it. So I committed BP to a whole bunch of particularly measurable objectives that we would discharge. Uh, so, the rest of the industry said, fine, you know, he's crazy uh, and uh, he's excommunicated. He, said have, he has left the church. So I, that didn't, I didn't mind that too much because we'd spent a lot of time in BP trying to figure out the meaning of all this. There were a lot of very intelligent people who said, life is changing, the world is changing, uh, and we, we had to assess whether or not they were talking nonsense or sense. And We concluded they were talking sense, mm-hmm. and actually a lot of our staff. We remember, an oil and gas company certainly then was very high tech. We had hundreds, mm-hmm. thousands of very highly qualified uh, engineers and scientists, mm-hmm. and they all had a view. So we asked for their view, mm-hmm. and it was overwhelmingly we must do mm-hmm. something about it. So we started.
1: Mm-hmm. And how did you how, how did you balance? Running an organisation like that, obviously shareholder return and driving profitability, return on investment absolutely critical. The rest of the industry would have excommunicated you because they said you can't make money by going this other path. We've got to stick to hydrocarbons and that's where we make our money. How did you think through that balance?
2: Well, fortunately, the records show that we were making uh, excess free cash flow Uh, and we usually made more than the market actually thought we were going to make. Uh, and performance was improving the whole time, so the value of the firm rose hugely over that time. So we kind of got a buy. You know, people said, "Well, okay, you know, I suppose they can do some of that." And we we balanced it with our basic R&D budget, so no one really minded, I suppose. Uh, and uh, I was fairly convinced that we were we were doing two things. One is. We were trying to demonstrate that we deserved a seat at the table. So when things changed, we were part of the conversation. Mm. I think we achieved that. And secondly, we were there to see if one or other of these things could actually contribute to world energy. Mm. And it was so early that basically it was not profitable. But, but we thought it could be, and indeed it is today. Mm. I think if I may, that was 97, and I think it was very important to BP, and it changed a lot of things, including the type of people who came to work for us. You know, so we began to draw in people who were different. They actually thought that, okay, well, energy is not about destroying the world. Mm. Energy is about giving people light, heat, and mobility, and we just gotta fix how to do it. So if you come to today, um, I gave an interview to the FT, two days ago about this, I'm absolutely convinced now that uh, oil and gas companies have to be accountable for the carbon that's in their production, so-called scope three, mm. uh, technical issue, but accountable for these things, and what's more, there is the technology to get rid of that carbon mm. by capturing the carbon you produce either before it's burnt or after it's burnt, mm through carbon capture and storage, or using the carbon dioxide. This can be done, technically. Mm. It needs to be, uh, either people need to be incentivized by a negative or positive incentive to get it done, mm. taxes or subsidies, probably taxes, uh, but they need to do this. Now, the other thing they've got to do, in my view, is figure out, so that solves the carbon business when it comes to car produced hydrocarbons, which incidentally every forecast says we need them for 20, 30 years at the same level as today. So we've got to solve this problem, we can, and then I think every big company has a choice. Uh, Can they persuade people that excess cash flow could be reinvested for diversification? Mm And that is the big challenge.
1: And so, and I think you maybe touched on this when you said 20, 30 years, but, but do you see a time when we are no longer using fossil fuels? Or do you think, you go back to the first part of your statement, you know, as long as we're capturing the carbon, as long as we're dealing with it, you know, they'll have a role to play for a very long time into the future. Well,
2: I'm a great believer in you know, solving problems. Mm. So who knows in 30 years? Mm. I I think I know about some things, you know. For example, if we could change the uh, world's attitude to uh, fission, nuclear reactors we have today, Mm -hmm. uh, we could solve a lot of this by building a lot of those. Don't know whether we'll get there. Uh, Fusion, you know, making it work like the sun, um, uh, it's gonna be a long time to get it commercial. I think uh, probably the end of the century for that. So between the two, there might be something. Uh, but there's a lot of things, you know, we, we can still... What is extraordinary is... So here's an interesting point, I think. If you look at the amount of oil that goes into one unit of GDP in the world, since 1985, this has come down on a straight line and has been reduced so far by 33%. So this is amazing. It's, we're actually becoming more and more efficient. So there's no, I don't understand why it should stop. Mm, You know, mm. it's a straight line, so probably carry on. Mm. I mean, obviously turn around eventually, but it should carry on. So gas, unfortunately, is flat, so maybe we'll get that coming down. So efficiency, new ideas, more carbon, capture and storage. Uh, We need to do all these things. If we don't, then we've got quite a risk on our hands here. I mean, the temperature could rise. You know three,
1: four degrees yeah. that's not good so let's lets let's turn to the book you know, which i've which I've read, and I've got to say I found it uh, remarkably uplifting, positive, balanced of course, and really the role of engineering and innovation in terms of you know, really driving us forward, driving civilization forward. What motivated you to to write this book why well, I Why think, this one
2: I, I think two things first is Uh, I'm always surprised that people ignore engineering. When you talk about civilization to people, as I do, you know, with all the things I do in the not-for-profit area, they'll talk about arts and humanities Mm. and uh, plays and movies, and quite right too. They're very important things Mm. to stretch and enlighten the mind and educate people. But actually, they're all founded on one very simple and basic point, which is an engineering platform. Mm. That's what uh, civilization's about. And I think people don't appreciate it, and when they look at it, very often they get scared. Mm. And I wanted to sort of reset the table a bit, to say, you know, this is very important. I'm not saying to you that, you know, engineering rules the world mm. and forget everything else. That's naive. Uh, but I was, would say to you that you have to think about this, and it's really important, because it will shape the future of the world, as it has in the past, mm look at what's happened in the past, and it will shape the future, and you have to be part of that. And a lot of people want to check out. They don't actually want to recognize it.
1: Let's talk about the role of regulation in technology, because you you can see the political discourse, and you see Zuckerberg in front of Congress, social media, privacy issues, you know, robots, putting people out of work. How do you think about I guess speed of change, adaptation, role of regulation? Well, it was one of the reasons I
2: wrote the book is to try and get people, if, if people could just sort of get up to speed a bit on what, what's really happening here and not overreact. For example, we, we've been worrying about the impact of automation on jobs for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Even when I was at Cambridge, I remember, <clears throat> this a long time ago, uh, going to uh, meetings where they said, What are we going to do when computers come on desks and people have all this leisure time? I haven't seen this. You see it here
1: in this building, actually, all I these computers. It. On this leisure.
2: it does actually have a turnout that, <laughs> compared with 120 years ago, uh, the work weeks dropped by 50%. So we're down to, on average, and I do stress on average, I know that here we're in the top 1%. On average, it's 36 hours a week. Uh, but there's no reason why that can't drop again. Mm. And you know, obviously, social policy has to change because we can need different hourly wages. But actually, we probably do need more people to do the one thing that machines will never do, which is to give people empathy. We need more people in, in empathy. Um, as well as, what i realized, when you go to my, one of the companies I used to be involved with, Mercedes, and I still go there, uh, is to see what happens in a factory now. In the olden days, you had these huge robots that were in cages that were scary, and you couldn't go anywhere close to them, and they metal-bashed, basically. Mm. Now you have robots which work with humans, uh, and they provide you know, a menu of parts, and, and, and they work together, very sort of gentle approach. So it's not wholly clear what actually happens to employment, mm. except for the fact, chances are, you need to be better educated to get a job, mm. you know, which is the statement of mm. the obvious. So I think a lot of these things can be diffused, but they're certainly very scary. So I think there's one thing about change. It's certainly, mm. I think change is never as fast as we think mm. it is. Uh, I notice with, uh, in particular, you know, being inundated with lots of uh, venture capital proposals is, you know, how people are amazingly naive on Mm, timescales. It just takes longer. Uh, And, you know, we've still been waiting, for example, for electric electric cars were going to be the thing 30 years Mm. ago. You know, I mean, there are a few. It just takes, and there will be more, but it takes time. Mm. So that's for the time scales, I think is
1: one. Thing. Two, maybe two slightly political questions. <laughs> you know, one, inequality, you talked about you may need to be better educated. What does all of this say for that? And, and then, secondly, the geographic, you know, the US has one approach to this, Europe has a different one, China, China Russia maybe have a third. But let's start with inequality and then talk about the geographic balance and and the impact that that'll have on growth in those different territories. So,
2: uh, well, first, everyone here I'm sure knows the data that, you know, when it comes to returns, uh, returns went to capital, not labour. And boy, has it changed. Mm. So we're back to the same ratio of inequality as we had in 1920 Mm. today because all the returns went to capital. Mm. So uh, that probably is cyclical, I I can't believe it'll carry on, something will happen, social policy will adapt. But equally social policy has to, as it has done, it's continued to adapt Mm. over history and I see no reason why it won't. So the laws change, social policy, regulation changes. Mm. And and that's the point about regulation. Mm. Uh, I, I think so it all keeps changing and it should do. What it can't do, and this is where regulation has got a problem, is it can't keep track of things mm. very often until it sees something going wrong. Notice a lot of regulation mm. is kind of fixing a problem mm. rather than preventing a problem. Uh, and And so I think that's where people get very annoyed. you know mm. so Facebook has to do something bad in order for people to say, "Well, maybe mm. we should start regulating this, you know or you know you you have uh, you know, one accident with an uh, autonomous vehicle and people say, we need new laws mm. for autonomous vehicles. The mere fact that they're probably 40,000 times safer than uh, human drivers is neither here nor there because I think we're probably expecting them to be 100,000 mm. times uh, safer. So uh, there's a lot of you know, contradiction here, but regulation is important partly because it stops people taking a free ride. Mm, I mean, mm. I, in business, I like regulation because I don't like people taking a free ride mm, on me mm. if I'm going to make something safer or better for
1: yeah, yeah. the public. And, so, and let's talk about the US, Europe, China, different approaches. All very different. And yeah. the,
2: all very different, and, and the big issue is the transition. We know very well that, in the long run, all this stuff sorts out. The big question is the transition, so in Europe I think people are trying to soft land the transition, but they're not succeeding, look at the regional policy in the UK for example where they might have attended to London but go to Leeds, it's a different matter. Mm. Uh, in China it's all about uh, managed, uh, managed activity of the population and managed activity of the educational system, which looks okay, except it it certainly and it's fine if you don't believe that people should have free choice, Mm. because they don't. Mm. Uh, And so there's a mix, I think, between these two extremes. The US has had this rather direct approach and has resulted in a more populist uh, administration. Mm. Mm. You know, everything has a consequence. Mm. Uh, But I don't think you you can't put the steel industry back together again. You certainly can't put coal mining together again. Nobody wants the coal. Mm. Uh, Actually, in spite of how cheap it is in some cases, but it's not cheap in the US. Mm. So so you can't reconstruct things. You have to think about how do you redeploy or how do you change what a community can do? And communities will come and go. They will die. Mm. They do die. Mm. Uh, you just have to look at some of the ancient yeah. communities and you know that they do die yeah, yeah. on a continuous basis.
1: And the world keeps moving on. The world keeps moving on. Just uh, staying with politics, <coughs> you're a member of the House of Lords, obviously you've been in and around policymakers for you know, a very, very long time. You know, has it always been thus, thus as in the state we're in now, one question, and secondly, you know, so much of this book is about you're thinking big, big plans, you're moving, moving things forward. Do we have the political capacity in our systems now to make the decisions? We, everything seems to be so fraught. And so so uh,
2: my, my view is, as a general rule, you should expect politics to be irrational and very occasional. In other words, it's more about the announcement than it is the execution. It's about the short term than the long term. A- and you should also think of it as local, not global. Mm. Once in a while, all that changes. And once in a while, someone comes up with a big idea that gets through, and it's really worth pushing uh, to get to that point. But it's not often, and once in a while, if we come up with a good idea mm. globally, like mm. uh, globalization, yeah. like trade, Well, we don't like it anymore, yeah. So we're changing it, and who knows, we may get yeah. back to where we started.
1: Going but to the moon.
2: It, it's all <laughs> these is. sorts of things, but I, I, I don't want to sound flippant, but you cannot expect uh, any politician, I think, to take into account the interests of everybody except uh, beyond their constituency, mm. whatever their constituency it is, whether it's the Chinese Communist Party or whether it's, uh, an MP Hill mm. or a representative in the United States, it's all local. Mm.
1: Maybe just one final question. You know, there's so many examples of engineering practically solving problems in, you know, in this book. If you had to you know, look back over history, you know, which is the most impressive Can I pick two very simple You can ones. pick two, yeah.
2: So I think, first of all, I do think the hand axe was one of the extraordinary breakthroughs Uh, to take a naturally shaped stone and to enhance it in order to cut up an animal and change completely the diet and therefore the evolution of the human. Uh, that was an amazing thing. And the other thing which I talk about in the book which is a very simple thing was uh, the stirrup. The stirrup was the start of real uh, engineered transportation. You could actually have more people ride a horse and control the horse than you could with bareback and all that sort of stuff. So the stirrup was the breakthrough uh, that made it possible to
1: change the face of the world, which is what it did. Two fantastic examples. John, thank you very, very much. Thank you.
0: This podcast was recorded on October 24th, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, As to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, The receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.